This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we take the measure of two of Latin America's new leaders, Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, the president-elect of Peru, and President Mauricio Macri of Argentina. What are the expectations? But first, Chorsey Martin is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. U.S. President Barack Obama made yet another plea to Congress to save Puerto Rico this week. Puerto Rico owes creditors more than $72 billion and has already missed some bond payments. The president wants Congress to act before July 1st. Right now, Puerto Rico is spending about a third of its tax revenue on debt payments, far more than anywhere else in America. And on July 1st, the island faces another $2 billion in debt payments that it cannot pay. Right now, Puerto Rico doesn't have the tools it needs to restructure its debt. Tools available elsewhere in America. And only Congress can fix the problem. The U.S. House of Representatives has passed a measure to allow the island to restructure its debts. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has promised to vote on the bill to save Puerto Rico by the end of the month. These promises came this week after a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. The court said the island did not have the power to override Congress in an attempt to restructure $26 billion in debt, debt tied to the operation of the island's utilities. Puerto Rico ran up some of its debt, providing subsidies and services for its population. At least 45 percent of the island's population falls beneath the U.S. poverty line. Now the accusations of corruption go all the way to the top in Brazil. This week, prosecutors released new information implicating interim President Michel Temer. Prosecutors say Temer may have accepted illegal campaign contributions. It's all part of the scandal swirling around the state oil firm Petrobras. Timmer denies the accusations, and Timmer lost yet another cabinet minister to the scandal, the third to resign in a month. Tourism Minister Enrique Alves quit after the new allegations also implicated him in the scandal. The country's top tourism official, Alves, resigns less than two months before the Summer Olympics are set to begin in Brazil. Four people died this week in Venezuela, caught up in violent food riots rocking the country. A series of riots and the looting of stores has swept across the country this week. Security forces arrested 400 people in the riots. Venezuela is suffering from 700 percent inflation, which means food items that might have cost a dollar last year now cost at least seven dollars this year. Citizens are complaining about widespread shortages of basics such as flour, pasta, and eggs. Also this week, President Nicolas Maduro said he would not allow any recall election against him until next year at the earliest. The president's supporters have also asked Venezuela's Supreme Court to reject a petition calling for a formal recall election. Okay, get ready. It's time for a spelling test. How do you spell Colombia? Do you use an O or U? Well, the sportswear company Adidas now admits its advertising for this month's Copa America tournament was W-R-O-N-G or M-A-L-O. In celebrating Colombia's national football team, yes, they spelled it incorrectly. 
Although Adidas officially apologized, no word from the company on how much it'll cost to change all those ads. As for the Colombian national team, they're in tonight's quarterfinals against Peru. By the way, the correct spelling, C-O-L-O-M-B-I-A. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. Thanks, Chorsey. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador. Our listening group in San Salvador was our third largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in northern Virginia, and Guatemala City. So we say mil gracias to all of our listeners in San Salvador and elsewhere around the globe. And now the cliffhanger election in Peru, where it took six days to count the votes. Pedro Pablo Kaczynski finished with 50.1% of the vote to Keiko Fujimori's 49.9%. Fujimori is the daughter of imprisoned former dictator Alberto Fujimori. We invited Joe Marie Burt back to the program to give us her impressions of the close election and what may lie ahead for Peru and Kaczynski, the president-elect who Peruvians call Pepe Ka. Burt is with George Mason University, and she's a senior fellow with the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. She's the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence, and the Authoritarian State in Peru. She joined us via Skype from Alexandria, Virginia. Well, first, let's say it was a nail-biting experience. I mean, observing these elections was incredibly tense, I think, for everyone involved on, on all sides. Um, it there was a, He had a, PPK had a slightly larger margin of victory the evening of the polls, but as the days wound, as the, the, the following days, his margin of victory began narrowing. And some of us began fearing a scenario similar to 2000 when we saw electoral authorities try to push through a first round uh, majority win by Alberto Fujimori. Uh, That didn't happen. Um, He won by something like 47,000 votes, which is an incredibly narrow victory. Um, So I think that's important to say that, that there are... And that is when you compare the total votes of the two candidates. If you break it down in terms of the 100% votes, it's a little bit more complicated because around 25% of Peruvians who were eligible either did not vote or spoiled their ballot. So, in fact, PPK and Keiko Fujimori actually um, took more more or less 36 or 37% of the of the total. Votes. I think it's important to think about what that means. Um, it's not as if the country is, you know, split in half. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But in terms of PPK's strategy, um, yeah, he was very laconic in the beginning. Uh, in the period between the first round and the second, which is a very long period, it's also it's about two, almost two months. It was a very long stretch of time. Um, he, in fact, at one point, he left Peru for almost ten days for the United States, and he took a lot of criticism. For that, um, and it was really the last week or so when he seemed to find new energy um, to not only critique his rival but also express more clearly what his government would stand for, and enter into a series of dialogues with um, sectors that he perhaps would not um, have spoken with otherwise, right? Which I think is very, very interesting. 
Um, the going negative, I mean, it's not as if he was, um, you know, it wasn't like negative attacks the way we might think about some of the very brutal attacks that, that get tossed around in political campaigns. So I think he was really highlighting the um, connections with her father's regime, which is a real concern. Um, and I think he was highlighting the charges that um, people very close to her campaign are involved in drug trafficking and, and other forms of organized crime. And literally a week before the second round election, um, the media reported that um, the DEA, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, was investigating uh, the person who was the head of her campaign, a Fujimorista congressman, and the head of her campaign, a very close Keiko Fujimori ally. Um, and PPK really honed in on that. And I think he did, that was smart of him, um, because it revealed what people had been saying was a major concern for quite a while. There are allegations of, I should say, organized crime and drug trafficking with um, the, 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 the political force that is represented by Keiko Fujimori. Do you have any concerns about President-elect Kuczynski in that the knock on him during the campaign was that he was not necessarily all about Peru, that he had lived for long stretches in the United States and the United Kingdom, that he is an, an economist with a World Bank background. Uh, certainly, he served in governments in Peru in the past. Um, and th even that his Spanish is sometimes highly accented now um, with, with an English accent. Um, do, you, do you have any concerns about him going forward? That would not be my concern. I mean, he's Peruvian. He was, he's of Polish um, descent, but Keiko Fujimori is of Japanese descent. I mean, the, to, to point fingers about things like that to someone who is was born in Peru, raised in Peru, his father, there's some interesting things that I've learned recently about PPK that I didn't know. For example, his father ran a leper colony in the Amazon. He grew up in the Peruvian Amazon. So this is, he, it's not as if he spent his entire life living in the United States. And uh, another uh, example would be Toledo. Toledo, Alejandro Toledo, who was president between 2001 and 2006, he moved to the United States when he was 16. He had a fellowship for at Stanford, and he lived and worked in the United States for most of his adult life. And he became president for so I, I think that was just a way to sort of try to discredit uh, PPK and emphasize that he's, you know, he's from the white upper class. I do think that was something that they were trying to you know, uh, capitalize on. Um, it, it's kind of funny coming from, you know, Keiko Fujimori, whose father fled Peru in 2000 on charges of corruption um, and fled to his the, the homeland of his parents, Japan, where he basically hid out for several years until he um, went to Chile and then he was extradited from Chile where he, and then he was was forced to face charges of human rights abuses and various charges of corruption. And he was convicted on every single charge. So, I mean, it's kind of funny that they're pointing fingers at, you know, at these kinds of issues with PPK. Um, and I think it goes back to the fact that on, on economic policy issues, they actually have very similar stances. They're both sort of free market 
policies are their their the policies that they favor. Um, so there wasn't a lot to debate there. So I think they were trying to find things that distinguished and discredited um, their opponent. Um, so I don't think that was a. I mean, it might have played well among some sectors, but I don't think that it, um, in the end, had the desired effect. I think what had much more impact was the anti-Keiko protests. Anything else we should consider going forward? Uh, I think it's important to remember that as part of his campaign strategy in the second round, PPK entered into agreements with a couple of different sectors. One was the labor movement, um, where he promised a series of, of things, in, you know, respect of labor rights and, and so on. And I think it's important, you know, hold his feet to the fire in fulfilling those obligations. He also met with victims um, of the internal armed conflict. He's promised to, for example, um, finalize a memorial um, that family members have been asking for for quite a long time in Ayacucho. There's a military base called Los Cabitos, which was the center of military operations during the counterinsurgency war against the Shining Path. And it also became a center for um, the arrest of suspected Shining Path members, many of whom were, had absolutely nothing to do with Shining Path. Um, many of them were tortured, many of the women, and sometimes some of the men were, were sexually violated. Um, many of them were forcibly disappeared and executed. And hundreds of bodies um, have been, um, hundreds of people were reportedly killed in this way and investigators were able to exhume over a hundred bodies. Some of the bodies were, um, they built ovens and they were, the, the bodies were physically destroyed. So s some of the bodies were never recuperated. But the family members have tried to create a memorial space in the area where these bodies were found as sort of a, you know, a remembrance to dignify the victims and to stand as a testimony of the horror that occurred in the context of Peru's counterinsurgency war so such things don't happen again in the future. Um, PPK promised to um, facilitate um, and, and, and bring this to fruition. So it's my hope that his government will fulfill these obligations. The other thing that's been raised, which I think is interesting, and important to talk about has been the situation of Alberto Fujimori, who, as we talked about a moment ago, PPK has said he would not pardon Fujimori, which I'm very pleased to hear because I think it's important for the rule of law and for perpetrators of these kinds of abuses to understand that they can be held to account and will, you know, they will serve out their terms. I think that's very, very important. Thank you so much. Joe Marie Bird of George Mason University, a senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, and the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from Alexandria, Virginia. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Nice talking with you, Rick. Coming up, analyzing Mauricio Macri and Argentina. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. 
Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, we feature the second part of our interview recorded last month with Mark Jones of Rice University and the Baker Institute, analyzing President Mauricio Macri and his policy shifts in Argentina. The week we conducted this interview, the Monsanto Corporation had threatened it would no longer sell genetically modified soybeans to Argentina because Argentina was refusing to collect the copyright fees on the genetically modified seeds. Argentina is the largest exporter of soybeans in the world. But since that time, both sides have negotiated a deal where Argentina will be screening crops and asking farmers to pay Monsanto the appropriate fees. We discuss that and more in our conversation with Jones, recorded via Long Distance Line from Houston, Texas. Well, things are going quite well for the Macri administration. Uh, certainly, we haven't seen any of the gridlock or fears of uh, governability that some people saw uh, back in the fall when he was elected. And there's been a sea change, really, it's night and day from the nature of government after 12 and a half years of uh, Kirchner government, first Nestor Kirchner and then uh, his spouse, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, with their authoritarian impulses, left-wing ideology, and corrupt behavior. We now have seen a more market-oriented, less corrupt, more transparent uh, administration under Mauricio Macri. And so that's been a real refreshing change for Argentina. And thus far, Macri has been able to retain relatively strong public support behind him, although that will start to falter if he's not able to get the economic house in order, both reducing inflation but also restoring economic growth. So let's talk about those two particular areas. Are there particular reforms that he has put on the table that are going to be essential to achieving those goals? Well, he already has obtained one key reform, and that is getting congressional approval to cut a deal with the holdouts. These were some vulture funds in New York that held Argentine debt who had not come to an agreement with the Argentine government when it defaulted in the 2000s. Uh, There were a couple of times where they had arrangements with holdouts and uh, debtors, but these people held out. And as long as the holdouts were operative, they effectively froze Argentina out of the international debt markets and also really created a political issue in terms of investment uh, for the country. And one of the real successes was that Macri very early on pushed that reform through Congress, and that's opened up Argentina's ability to uh, go out on the international capital markets, as well as restore investor confidence in Argentina as a place where the rule of law is respected, which wasn't the case under Cristina Fernandez. Can we say that President Macri has really set the debt crisis that was in front of Argentina to rest finally with these reforms, or is there still more to be done regarding the Argentine debt crisis? Well, at least the first uh, step has been taken care of. That is agreement with the holdouts. I think the question is, not so much in the short term, but in the medium or long term, is will Argentina be able to avoid a future default? Because as we know, Argentina has a history of being being a serial defaulter, that is defaulting on its debt approximately every, every 10 to 15 years in recent history. 
And so I think the real question will be not so much over the next five years or perhaps even the Macri administration, but uh, within the next 10 years, if Argentina is able to get its economic uh, house in order and avoid any future defaults. But for now, Macri has put the fear of default far to the side and focused efforts on getting prices back in line with market reality and reducing inflation, and then getting the types of investment, both domestic and foreign, that the country needs in order to get on the path to economic recovery and growth. I wonder if you have any thoughts about whether the recent visit of President Obama to Argentina also signaled to investors, not just in New York but elsewhere, that um, Argentina was open for business again, the United States was was healing a rift um, by his presence and, and going forward with, with new economic plans? Or do you see it differently? Oh, no, I see it exactly that way. It really was an ability for President Obama to say it's morning in Argentina. There's a new government here. It's not the government that was anti-business, that confiscated private property, that didn't respect the rule of law, that inhibited the ability of uh, foreign capital as well as domestic capital to do business. You now have a government uh, under Mauricio Macri that's open for business that looks on foreign capital in a favorable light, that is, viewing it as necessary for the country to develop its uh, infrastructure and wealth, especially its uh, energy industry uh, in terms of petroleum as well as natural gas. It's important to keep in mind that in the Baca Muerta, or the dead cow uh, uh, shale play, Argentina has shale deposits that rival those of the Eagle Ford and the Permian uh, here in the United down in Texas, as well as the Bakken in Dakota and the Marcellus in uh, Pennsylvania. And so there's a but to develop those shale play that shale play and others, Argentina desperately needs foreign capital and expertise, and that capital and expertise are not going to arrive if people believe that Argentina hasn't changed its ways and. President Obama sent a very clear signal that in his eyes, Argentina has changed its ways and that it is a place that's safe to invest for American investors as well as investors from other countries. Because we're talking about economics and you've been talking about the oil and petroleum industry, uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about agriculture because Argentina is also known uh, not just for its cattle industry, but but for for its agriculture industry, specifically soybeans. And we saw this week that that Argentina and uh, the Monsanto Corporation are in a bit of a dust-up regarding business and um, the need that Monsanto sees for it to be paid for its um, genetically modified crops in Argentina. Does this dust-up between the countries surprise you? Um, well, at least between Argentina and Monsanto, surprise you? And and is it more in line with what the Kirchner era might have seen? Well, uh, Macri has, from the very start, tried to incentivize agricultural production by lowering some ac- export taxes and uh, across the board, and particularly for soy, to encourage farmers both to export uh, soy and wheat that they were holding in silos, uh, particularly big silo bags they use but also to uh, ramp up production. Now, in terms of the dispute with Monsanto, that in many ways dates back to the Kirchner era, and I actually am a little surprised that, the, that Monsanto is being so aggressive in that uh, Macri's only been in, in power for five months. Uh, he's trying to clean up over 12 and a half years of economic disorder created by the Kirchners, 
and he can only do so many things at a time. And on the dispute with Monsanto, it's a gray area where Monsanto has some good points, but so do the Argentines. And so I'm a little surprised that Monsanto didn't wait at least a little while to let the Macri government get a more former, uh, firmer footing in terms of the export market and economic growth before uh, launching this salvo. In some ways, I think they were ill-advised and jumped the gun a little bit. We talked a lot here about the economic policies of the new Macri government. I, I, I wonder about other reforms or other policy shifts that you expect to see uh, in the coming months and years under this administration? One thing that they've already started to do is to resolve the imbalance between the prices being charged for many uh, public services and their actual cost. So under the Kirchner government, gas was heavily, natural gas was heavily subsidized, electricity was heavily subsidized, water was heavily subsidized, and and public transport was heavily subsidized. And so Argentine consumers weren't paying anywhere near the actual cost, with the cost of all of those goods being anywhere from a third to a tenth of what you would find in neighboring countries. And so the Macri government very slowly, but in a very determined manner, has been slowly raising all of those prices, trying to get them closer and closer to actual market values. Because one difficulty Argentina found itself in under the uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner particularly is its use of electricity and natural gas was going through the roof because it was effectively free. So Argentines, instead of turning down the heat, would open a window because you were paying more for a Coke on the street than you would for two months of your natural gas bill. And so the Macri government has been very determined to raise uh, those rates. Now, at the same time, it has, though, suffered some criticism, particularly from the left, that by uh, engaging in these practices of raising uh, public tariffs and, uh, and reducing subsidies, it's increasing the costs that the poorest Argentines pay. So it, at the same time, has tried to provide some subsidies, particularly for those who have the least. I'm glad you brought up criticisms for the left, because it doesn't seem like former President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner has really gone away. She's mobilized uh, anti-mockery demonstrations, um, um, pro-Kirchner demonstrations in in the streets of Buenos Aires. Um, She um, looks like she's already campaigning for president again, um, and she's uh, tried to defy uh, judicial authorities in the country. Uh, What are your thoughts about the continuing presence and charisma of the former president? Well, Cristina Fernandez is certainly a nuisance for the Macri administration. However, with every passing day, she's less relevant. Uh, She no longer uh, controls any territory outside of the small province of Santa Cruz, where her sister-in-law is governor, and her number of loyal national deputies and senators shrinks uh, with every passing day. Uh, And one of the reasons why she's being so aggressive is, in part, uh, the idea that the best defense is a good offense. And she knows that there are dozens of judicial cases that make it crystal clear that she and many of her close associates were engaged in relatively massive acts of corruption. And so this is one way for her to keep the Macri government on the defensive and perhaps keep herself out of jail. Although she's going to, while she's not going to disappear, and certainly her, her loyalists are going to remain a re- relevant political force, they aren't a decisive political force, and they become less decisive uh, with, the, with the passing of, so of time. 
and we've seen many of her uh, close associates, uh, now that uh, the judiciary isn't being restrained by the executive branch, uh, placed uh, under arrest, uh, house arrest, and with many of the corrupt acts they were engaged in now coming, coming fully to public life. Thank you so much. Mark Jones of Rice University and the James A. Baker III Institute joining us today via long-distance line from Houston, Texas. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. We again want to acknowledge the Latin American Studies Association, LASA, for its help in supporting our work at its recent convention in New York City. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website, Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant, Chorsey Martin, and technical director, Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.